my narrative about the Middle East was kind of the CNN narrative, which is for all intents and purposes, this is a lot of conflict and a lot of issues and top-down problems. And it was in 2010 that I got invited from very dear friends who were ecosystem leaders there who said, you're totally underestimating what's happening here. We're having the first major gathering of startups in the Arab world. And within two hours of being at this gathering in Dubai, I knew my life had changed. It changed. It changed. So we lived the internet since 50,000 to 100,000 users in the Arab world to hundreds of millions of dollars. The guy who owned the company was actually sitting casually on the end of the table where I was signing my contract and said to me, I don't like your kind. I said, I'm sorry, what do you mean? We're seeing startups want to expand to cross-country markets. That's their only potential for their exponential growth as a potential deal. Welcome to the Global Startup Movement's six-week activation of the MENA startup ecosystem, where we'll be featuring an interactive deep dive into the tech and innovation landscape across the Middle East and North Africa region through a weekly narrative podcast episode, a live stream pitch competition, which will both culminate in an interactive virtual summit on February 16th. Visit ecosystemarabia.tv and drop in your email to make sure that you secure your spot at the virtual summit and to join in on the activation. And a special thanks to our presenting partner, the Export-Import Bank of the United States. As the global middle class grows and technology makes the world smaller, opportunities have never been greater for American businesses to reach customers beyond the U.S. border. Exim provides federal resources to access capital and mitigate foreign risk. And no business is too small. Let Exim help you export fearlessly to the MENA region and beyond. Visit export.gov slash MENA to learn more. Yahoo is making inroads into the Arab market. The web search company is buying Arabic language internet company Maktoub. Founded in 2000, Maktoub is the largest internet portal in the Mideast. Yahoo did not disclose the value of the deal. We started in Jordan, but we created a regional Arab product. This is Sameh Tukin. In 2000, Sameh founded and became the CEO of Maktoub.com the world's first Arabic email service, which grew into the largest Arab online community with over 16 million users worldwide. You know, we had users across the Arab world, from Morocco to Saudi Arabia. We had users in the U.S. So the the beauty of the Internet is that it broke barriers and boundaries. In 2009, Yahoo acquired Maktoub.com for $164 million, becoming the first notable acquisition in the MENA startup ecosystem. But when Sameh and his partners first set out to build Maktoub, Internet penetration throughout the Arab world was still in its nascent stage. From every 10 people you talk to, probably one or two would know, you know, would have connection to the Internet or know what we're talking about. So it was an uphill battle in terms of penetration. So we lived the Internet since, you know, it had, I don't know, 50,000 to 100,000 users in the Arab world to hundreds of millions now. And uh, we, we continuously monitored the, uh, the reach numbers and how much penetration the internet had in every country. And it, it differed from country to the other. Having been inspired by Hotmail's viral marketing tactics, the McTube team decided to leverage its own viral marketing strategies, positioning as a company proudly built by Arabs for Arabs. And the fact that it is Arabic, the fact that it uses Arabic language, we want to promote Arabic language. Even our first campaign was called the Sajjil and Arabi, which is taken from a famous poem from the poet called Mahmoud Darwish. 
Write down, I am an Arab, and my identity card number is 50,000. I have eight children, and the ninth will come after a summer. Will you be angry? Write down, I am an Arab. And uh, it worked. It worked very well. And we used to get 100 users per day, then 1,000 users per day, then 2,000 users per day. It continued just to grow and grow and grow until we reached a million. And eventually, uh, we, when we sold to Yahoo, we had uh, 16 uh, million uh, users. And Maktoub was just a start for Samay and his team's ambitions for the region. Uh, so the year 2009, Yahoo buys Maktoub. And we had to split. I mean, we were one company. Maktoub Group was one company. Maktoub Group had other companies under their umbrella in addition to Maktoub.com, including Maktoub TV, CashU, which was an online payment method and a digital alternative to credit cards, as well as Maktoub Shopping, which was eventually rebranded to Souk. We had, uh, you know, different leaders for each product, but it was one company. We had shared accounting, we had shared legal, we had shared human resources and so on. So, so that t- took a, a lot of time with Yahoo, probably six months or more, until we were able to separate these completely. Yahoo took Maktoub.com with its team, 250 people. And so they, they became Yahoo employees. And we were left with the other companies. And we put all these other companies under one umbrella uh, called Jabbar Internet Group. And the idea was that Jabbar will be the will continue holding these companies and supporting them. So Sukh at the beginning continued to be, you know, from Maktoub moved under Jabbar. So it was incubated by Jabbar. Now Sukh before Jabbar is different than Sukh after Jabbar. And the reason is that Sukh before Jabbar was, was you know, growing and we were experimenting and learning and so on. But we, we also didn't have the full bandwidth. But after the Yahoo Maktoub deal, there was more financing, you know, as a result of the deal, we were able to inject more money, uh, us as investors, and also Tiger, our main investor out of New York, we were able to inject more money from the proceeds of the Yahoo Matsubi into developing Souk and other projects. So that gave Souk a big push. I would say after the year 2010, this was the beginning of, you know, the growth of Souk. It had more money, more focus, and so on. And we started gradually to to develop Souk to, to become an, a company on its own and detach it as slowly from Jabbar. Because we knew you know, Jabbar is a platform that will support startups and incubate it. But at one point when these companies have the potential to grow and have the right financing, it will continue to grow on their own. So we spun off Souk uh, on its own. And, uh, you know, I started raising funds into several rounds, uh, beginning with Tiger and uh, then Naspers uh, from South Africa. And then, you know, with uh, the last round uh, two years ago was from a, a diverse uh, range of uh, investors until. Um, and I, w- I want to change topics just a little bit, Selena, because you had a great story uh, today. It was interesting about Amazon. Uh, and, and the focus that Amazon's got on uh, on the Middle East with a big a pretty big acquisition, we think. Yeah, definitely. It was a pretty large acquisition. We don't know exactly what the amount was. They had at one point been in talks for something like $650 million, but we think it was it's probably closer to a billion this time. This is a big deal for Even Amazon. Even for Amazon, that's a lot of money, a billion dollars. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they see the Middle East as an emerging, growing market. This gets them a company with huge brand presence. It's one of the biggest e-commerce companies the in company the Middle East. Souk, or Souk.com. Yeah. 
Yeah, soup.com. The multiplier impact these enterprises have as tech-enabled enterprises is profound. So in the case of soup.com, soup not only hired thousands of people and became a very large and successful business that facilitated commerce, 85,000, I think, small businesses were able to reach digital customers because soup.com was there. It was a platform. This is Chris Schroeder. You heard from him at the opening of this episode with his recap of his first trip to Dubai back in 2010. Chris is a globally-minded investor, as well as a serial internet media entrepreneur and CEO. His best-selling book, Startup Rising, was a result of his travels throughout Dubai, Cairo, Amman, Beirut, Istanbul, and even Damascus, where he met thousands of talented and successful entrepreneurs who are willing to face cultural, legal, and societal impediments that are inherent throughout the MENA region. This buzz was happening in parallel with the Arab uprising. In fact, I don't look, I, very often journalists have tried to push me to say these are two separate things, and not at all. Anonymous has heard the cries for freedom from the Tunisian people and has decided to help them win this battle against oppression. Anonymous believes there have been and will be further changes in the way the world is organized so that never more will small groups of people be able to restrain the fundamental freedoms of the collective that is humankind. Anonymous therefore believes the Tunisian attempts at censorship are doomed to failure if only we, Anonymous, the people, take up our individual responsibilities. For if only we decide to make it so, it will be done. During the Arab Spring, the hacking collective known as Anonymous was everywhere. In Egypt, Anonymous hacked into government websites and took them offline. In Syria, they posted a message supporting the uprising on the government's Ministry of Defense website. And in one of their most infamous efforts, nicknamed Operation Tunisia, they took down the government website and spread anonymous communication software to protesters. This particular revolution culminated in President Ben Ali fleeing to Saudi Arabia. This was a new generation, one that was ready to stand for what's right, to heal the past, and to move forward together. And so the phenomenon that has driven the sort of tech-specific rise is also, in fact, a lot of the tool set helpful for people everywhere. I can't tell you, as another example, around the world, but one who was particularly moving to me in the Middle East, uh, was a very well-known retail jewelry store in Cairo, been there for decades and everything else. The daughter kind of stepped into the business and put it on Instagram. All of a sudden, they had 80,000 followers. I mean, it completely revolutionized the very traditional business. So these are tools. I mean, technology are profound tools, and they can be things into of themselves, but they also can unleash other kinds of areas of ideation and creation that, again, would have been hard for us to talk about in any of these rising markets a few years ago. And Chris is touching on an important point of this miniseries. Venture capital does have its place in economic development for the region, but isn't even close to the whole story. This is Zakaria Yahya. I am 25 years old. I am from Gaza, Palestine, and I am married. I have a baby, Yahya. He is two years old, and uh, I have get started working as a freelancer translator since 2015. Access to global freelancing marketplaces is rapidly opening up a new engine for job creation in emerging economies and especially in conflict zones. In countries that have weak currencies, freelancers have the ability to sell services in exchange for U.S. dollars with increased spending power locally because of the favorable exchange rates. I managed to to start uh, working as a full-time freelancer, translator, content writer, and also as a voiceover artist in Arabic. 
I have made more than $85,000, which is very good success for such a young man. I am, I am still 25 years old, you know. And finally, I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable and pretty sure that I, ha- I will have a good future. Today, I can pay all the bills. I can help my, my dad. I can help my family um, with their bills and with their fees. And um, not only my small family, but the whole family. And um, I'm so happy also because I managed to help uh, hundreds of young men to start working as a freelancer. I believe that if you need to get the good thing, you need to deliver the, the good thing to the people. And I also believe in what Mahatma Gandhi once said, if you want to see the change in the world, start with yourself. Be the change that you want to see in the world. So I started with myself. I managed to change myself for the better. And today I believe I can change the world, the small world here in Gaza. And I did. And I am doing. We'll hear more from Zachariah later in the miniseries. While earning in dollars and spending in local currency is a great thing for a lot of freelancers in emerging economies, the flip side of that coin is the ability for heavily funded U.S., European, or Chinese tech giants to come enter your market and compete with your local players. Which begs the question, if tech giants have such a powerful multiplier effect in the ecosystem, should governments in the region take on the role of protecting their local competitors? There's an economist at Cambridge. His name's Hajun Chang. This is Afosa Ojomo. Afosa leads a global prosperity research group at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, an innovation-focused think tank based in Boston and Silicon Valley. In January 2019, alongside Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen, he published his book, The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. He talks about different economies and the levels they are, low income, high income, and so on, sort of in the same way we put uh, boxing and how you would have uh, lightweight, uh, middleweight, and heavy boxing divisions. And he says, look, you would never put a heavyweight boxer in the same ring as a lightweight. Ladies and gentlemen, in the left corner... We have Yemen weighing in at a lean and mean 27.6 billion GDP. And in the right, we have China clocking in at 17.4 trillion in GDP. Fighters, are you ready? It just doesn't make sense. You don't do that. And so when we talk about competition on the global scale and talk about free trade and liberalized economies, um, we talk as if these economies are on equal footing, equal um, similar histories, similar assets, and so on. It is impossible for low-income countries to compete if there aren't guardrails, if there aren't rules that help their own industries develop. Now, the way and the efficiency with which they manage those rules is different from having rules that, that protect them. Because people always point to the, the way uh, India, for instance, managed its economy when it had a lot of uh, uh, tariffs um, or the uh, Latin American countries. Um, but they also forget that the United States had a lot of tariffs when it was growing and, and developing or 
or that South Korea and Japan had a lot of uh, import uh, tariffs. The issue is not uh, uh, tariff or bad or is protectionism good or bad. That's not the issue at all. Virtually every rich country has protected their infant industries, especially when they were infant. The question is, who should we protect? How? And are we willing to protect them in a way that helps them become globally competitive? If you regulate for productivity, not profitability, you will be in no time develop your own Amazons, your own Googles, and so on. But you must regulate for productivity. It's a, it's a lot. It's too easy to regulate for profitability. From the large to the small, technology has changed the way we do business. It has emboldened a new generation. It has given a voice to the voiceless, and it has the potential to lift every country in the MENA region out of poverty and into an integrated, abundant future that we all want and know is possible. So, Afosa, any last words? What I see when I see a country with a um, militaristic government or a country with a ton of corruption or a country with unimaginable poverty, uh, what I see is, okay, that is where they are today. That does not mean that's where they'll be tomorrow. With what I've learned and little I know about innovation and economic prosperity, I can see a path that will help you get from intense poverty to prosperity. That path is not easy. It will not be easy. I have not easy. It's incredibly difficult. Innovation, I've said, is blood, sweat, and tears. It is going against everything in society. That's incredibly difficult. But that has tremendous impact on society. And so when I think about our book, when I think about the ideas in it, projects like the one you're working on that are really trying to change the rhetoric, introduce language on innovation, ecosystems, that makes me very happy because it's pointing to a society where, or at least a world, where the mechanism that can help us prosper um, is becoming more and more widespread. And that's a good thing. That's very good Thanks for tuning in to the first of our six-episode podcast miniseries diving deep into the MENA startup ecosystem. At the end of every episode, we'll provide you with a question based on key themes for you to respond to through a WhatsApp voice note. And we'll be including compilations of our favorite responses at the start of each subsequent episode. This week's prompt is, what do you think has been the most impactful contribution that technology has had on the MENA region? Send us a WhatsApp voice note with your response to plus one five seven one two three zero eight zero nine three, and tune in to next week's episode to hear if you are selected, and listen in as we break down how the region's ecosystem leaders are laying the foundation to unlock the MENA creative economy. Thanks again to our presenting partner, the Export-Import Bank of the United States. As the global middle class grows and technology makes the world smaller, Opportunities have never been greater for American businesses to reach customers beyond the U.S. border. Exim provides federal resources to access capital and mitigate foreign risk. And no business is too small. Let Exim help you export fearlessly to the MENA region and beyond. Visit exim.gov slash MENA to learn more. 
And be sure to visit www.ecosystemarabia.tv to drop in your email and be sure that you don't miss an episode of our Ecosystem Arabia miniseries.